Hey there, I'm Foley artist Allison D. Moore, and you may know me by my work on Barry, The Dark Knight, and Frozen. And you're listening to Kyle on the Isle. And welcome to Kyle on the Isle. I'm Kyle Olson. Get ready to step into the world of movie magic, where every footstep, rustling leaf, and creaky door hinge is crafted with meticulous precision. Our guest today is none other than Allison D. Moore, a masterful Foley artist whose hands have breathed life into the subtle sounds of cinematic masterpieces. Whether it's the eerie ambiance of The Dark Knight, the playful bounces in Space Jam, or the meticulous audio details of The Social Network and Inception, Allison is the unseen genius behind them all. With three Emmy Awards on her shelf and a nomination for a fourth, she is undoubtedly a sonic force in Hollywood. So join me as we dive into the art of Foley and unveil the secrets of sound with the legendary... Allison D. Moore. And action! Allison D. Moore, welcome to Kyle on the Isle. Well, thank you, Kyle. Glad to be here today. We are so glad to have you. When we talk about someone who has a lot of experience in this industry, just looking at your resume, your IMDb list, you're almost endlessly scrolling. You have so many credits. <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of incredible. And I'm very, very excited, as I'm sure our listeners are, to dive into some of these credits and kind of how your career has really come to be what it is. But one of the questions that I really like to start with whenever we're doing these kind of talks is why did you get into this business? What brought you this initial kind of interest of eh, maybe show business for me? <laughs> well, my dad was a character actor, so growing up, mm. I sort of grew up around the business. My mother was a frustrated actress. They met at the Pasadena Playhouse, which was a theatrical college in Pasadena. Sure. So I always knew I wanted to do something in the arts. I just wasn't quite sure what it was. I loved music and I loved writing, mm. so I thought my path would be more musical. And yeah. when I dropped out of high school when I was 16, got, I got a job with a sound editor. And I thought, well, sound, music, it's all kind of together. And sure. therein lied my path. For two years, I worked with him as an assistant. And then some Foley artists that I was working with, just taking notes for the editor, had said, hey, we need someone to fill in when we get sick. Are you interested? And that's sort of how it happened. There were like 20 people at the time that, they were called Foley Walkers. But before Ooh. that, it was the sound editor that actually did all those sounds. Interesting. Very good. Now, when you're growing up, especially in a family full of actors, right, was there a bit of a genuine interest? Like, I had a gotcha movie growing up that was like, when I watched The Wizard of Oz for the first time, I was like, I want to do that for a living. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a kind of gotcha film or a gotcha TV show that really 
entranced your interest even more? It was actually a book. I oh. loved the book, The Outsiders by Essie Hinton. Ooh, yes. And I wanted to produce it. I thought, you know, I was a teenager, but I thought my dad was an independent producer at the time. And I thought this would be a really great thing to produce one day. And then, of course, yeah. Francis Ford Coppola beat me to it. But um, He did, yes. He did. He did. Yeah. And what a lovely job he did. But very interesting that it kind of inspired from a book. Very yes. nice. Okay. Yeah. So when you talk about like your first kind of Hollywood job, how did that really kind of come to be? You talk a little bit about the kind of inching in, filling in when people are saying, what would you kind of define as like your first real job in the industry? Well, my first job in the industry was when I was about 10 years old. Mm. I was in my dad's movie called The Brotherhood of Satan. Oh, wow. And we did, I think, six weeks in New Mexico. And I was a featured child actor. I had no lines, but that was sort of my first foray into the actual acting bug. And then after that, I was on a show called Elementary News with kids telling the news. And we wrote a lot of our own copy. And I did that for a couple of years. And I really, I was more comfortable behind the camera instead of in front of the camera. Mm, By the time my first then job job that I had for two years was as personal assistant for a sound effects editor at a Mm. post-production facility. And he taught me a lot. I learned a lot. I would go with him to the Foley stage when they would all do their sound effects wild, wild meaning they just recorded them not to picture. And then they would go back and then they would cut it into the show versus Foley is actually doing the sound effects to the picture in sync, right. Right? right? So that was a little different. Yeah. But I have to tell you, as a kid going with my dad to work sometimes, I loved the whole experience of being on a set and yeah. just the smell of that, that kind of musty, antique smell. And it was cold yeah. and everybody was so nice and would like kind of sit me on an apple crate and I just, I love the whole process. I'm so glad you brought up your dad because I do want to ask a little bit more about your dad. Your dad is not just any old guy. Your dad was Alvy Moore who played Hank Kimball on Green Acres, which is arguably a staple show. When you talk about television history, Green Acres always comes up. Also, arguably one of the best theme songs of all times. But right. that's a different discussion. <laughs> Everyone knows that. <laughs> Everyone knows Green Acres. Yeah. But what I'm interested in is exactly kind of what you were talking about, right? Where, like, obviously, some of your earliest memories, I would imagine, in showbiz were being your dad's shadow. What was that like, and what did you learn from Dad and pick up in those early days when you were kind of learning the world that he was in in this crazy thing we call showbiz? You know, I really learned from my dad. He was very humble and always gave 100% to anybody that came up and talked to him or wanted an autograph. I mean, he would stay to the very last person that wanted to talk to him, and I just learned a lot from him in that way just to be nice to people and he certainly was not a diva whatsoever I think I learned just more of that being nice and he also told me listen this is show business Mm -hmm. and it's a business first and I think a lot of people forget that that 
Yes. It's not show <laughs> artistry. It's show yep. business. So it's show business. We need to do our best in that realm of, you know. Yeah. As much as we want to be artistry and you know, <laughs> there's always like, you you hear these different phrases, right? Like it's not art, it's business. You also hear a lot of times the it's uh, show business, not show friends, right? That's right? A lot of times we work with people that we love and, and we really enjoy working with, but there are times that come along that are uh, a little bit tougher to interact with these folks that we do love. Uh, but at the end of the day, that all boils back to it's show business. They're making these films because they want to make Money, right? That's ultimately yes. what drives this whole thing. And so that must be an interesting lesson to kind of absorb earlier on as you're kind of experiencing this industry and seeing that, oh, yeah, this is really cool. And what dad does is fun and neat and the smell of nostalgia and those kind of things. Right. But it's also you're watching your dad work, right? Like ultimately he's going to work. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Especially later on when he was producing independent films, he produced a film called The Boy and His Dog, which I think was the most successful film he produced. And just hearing from him budgets and how they cut corners and right. it's just, a, it's fascinating when you hear the old school way of working that they don't really do anymore, but right. yeah, right. I mean, independent films weren't really anything. They weren't cool then, but. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's funny when we talk about this, because obviously, especially at a time when like your dad was in the industry, like I know nowadays we're so used to getting emailed call sheets and we're texting and we're communicating with each other 24 seven. And obviously there was a time when that technology was not a thing, which almost sounds absurd to say, but it really wasn't that long ago. <laughs> it's true. And, yes. Right. Yeah. And it makes you stop and think, well, oh my gosh, like when I'm on set, oftentimes we joke, how did they make the movies back before the internet and before cell phones and everything? And <laughs> my favorite answer is always, well, they planned. They actually had to plan more and they couldn't make as many last minute changes. And, you know, they had to roll with the punches in a different way than we do nowadays. We're very spoiled today as opposed to the world of what your dad was used to when you were kind of growing up in that world, right? Exactly, exactly. And we don't even use that technology anymore. I mean, I think they filmed right. in Super 16. <laughs> Which is yeah. like, what super, you know, super 16. Yeah, that's which, ancient now. Right. Nobody does that, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. You know, that's the whole thing about history, right? And anything you really learn a lot by just studying what someone did before, it was just a different time. Different time and forced you to be creative in different ways, right? And yes. Funny to see which of those techniques have kind of carried on through the years and others that have since kind of gone by the wayside, right? Exactly. Like Foley hasn't really changed that much. Technically, it has for sure. the mixer and for the editor. But for us, it's still that same basic physicality. So, yeah. Right, right. I'm glad you brought this up because I do want to start getting into your resume. Like I kind of teased at the beginning, you've worked on some incredible productions. I'm looking at a list right here. Everything from Dark Knight, Her, Frozen, The Social Network, Inception, The Hangover, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, I Am Legend, Transformers, The Prestige, Gone Girl. I could keep going, but then we'd run out of time. Uh <laughs> <laughs> well, that's 40 um, years, you know. Years, yeah, right? it's a long career, <laughs> a long right? <laughs> and my understanding is that nowadays you're in-house at Warner Brothers where you've mm -hmm. been for quite some time. Is that correct? Yes. yes, I've been there for about 25 years now. 
Wow, incredible, which is also incredible because right now they're celebrating their 100 years. So you've been there a quarter of their history. (laughs) That's right. And my dad was there before me doing Little House on the Prairie. And Oh, wow. So I always felt a little kinship. My sister worked for Warner Brother Records, which is right across the street. So it feels very family oriented to me. Warner Brothers feels a little bit like home, I would imagine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. How cool. So before we actually dive into some of these specific productions, I would love for you to explain a little bit about your world, because we always see this like Universal had it on the studio tour a while back and like, you know, those kind of things. Right. But it's an area that doesn't get the spotlight as much. So what I do is I physically create sound effects. So we work on a sound stage or a recording stage that has several different surfaces, concrete. We have a dirt pit, like a wood dock, a nice wood floor, and maybe another one that's kind of creaky. So while the picture is running, if there's someone on screen and uh, wearing tennis shoes running down the street, I'll have on tennis shoes, I'll be on the concrete surface in front of a microphone, and I'll be running in place in sync with what's going on on the screen. So we replace every footstep in every project we work on, even the people walking around in the background, waitresses, soldiers way in the background. It doesn't matter. We cover it all. We have an editor who writes cue sheets and tells us what they need. Then we'll go Mm -hmm. back and let's say someone's chopping an onion, sauteing the onion, all of those sound effects, reading a book. A car crash, you know, let's say we'll do the impact. We might load a gun, stabbing people, pulling out their guts. Do we really know what that sounds like? Do a lot of people really know what that would sound like? But I have to think about what you think it would sound like so that you're not taken out of that moment. Because bad Foley, we all know that in those old kung fu type, right? (laughs) I was going to say, if you're not good at your job, you know it right away when you watch the movie, right? (laughs) You do. But if you're good at your job, you shouldn't notice it. Unfortunately, what that does is we're sort of pushed to the side. Like, well, why would you need that? Because all that came in while you were filming. Well, no, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> right. No. Yeah. People think there's a more of a magic that just happens. And it's like, yes. no, no, no. There was a lot of hard work, blood, sweat, and tears that went into actually creating That's what right. you saw as that final product. Yeah. They're just trying to get the dialogue. Absolutely. And to explain to some people like that might be listening that are like, well, but why do they have to re-record all of these? What is the end? Why do you want to re-record these things when you're in post like that? Because mostly actors are either mic'd from above or a lav mic on their clothes and you're not going to hear their footsteps or even their cloth. So that's another thing that Foley that we do for every show, every movie is we do what's called a cloth pass where Mm. we basically sit in a chair and watch the show with like a piece of cloth and just follow what they're doing, especially if they have to go in and, redo their lines maybe there's a plane going by something happens where they have to well they take all the sound out it's absolutely a naked track so having the footsteps having the cloth add more of a natural personal element right so that's why all of that is done mostly because it's more expensive to have the actor come in and 
redo their lines, right? Then it right. is for us exactly. to just, Then yeah. it is for you guys to cover all those noises in post, right? Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So if you were kind of doing like a small masterclass on how to be the best Foley artist you could be, what would your first lesson be on? Like, what would you tell people that want to get into this craft? I would tell people to just sit and listen. If you ever have a power outage, it's a very odd sensation. You try to figure out, like, why is this making me feel so uncomfortable? I think it's the lack of sound. It's the lack of the hum of the refrigerator or the air conditioner. And then we always tell students who are trying to get into Foley, I always say, while you're walking down the street, just Foley the person in front of you while you're walking. I think that footsteps are the hardest things for people to be natural at. Props come pretty easy for people because their hand-eye coordination is usually good. But with footsteps, you have to have a natural heel toe, which means your ankle has to be loose. And I also tell people take a tap class because tap dancing kind of loosens you up a little bit. Yeah. But if sometimes it's like heel toe, heel toe, heel toe. It just doesn't sound natural, but when you've been doing it forever, it's just a heel toe, heel toe, heel toe, heel toe. It's unnatural. Interesting. I don't think I would have thought that footsteps are the most difficult thing or one of the more challenging aspects to it. But it sounds like this is one that like you've really gone from Padawan to master if you can get that skill down. That's right. And the subtleties to it. So is someone mad? While they're walking, they're going to sure. be stomping their feet a little bit more. The cat burglar, are they going to be very quiet, <laughs> right. right? Or like, you know, you think of like the West Wing, they got somewhere to go and they're walking at a, just a different pace, right? So there's all different types of moods and confidence levels. and That's right. Just general, what would you call it? Like the actor would call it the moment before, right? Where what's happening in that scene, what's motivating, the motivation behind that all, right? That's right. We have to tell you the emotion of what that person is doing. Being in sync is one thing, but it's almost like being an actor. You have to kind of get into that mindset of that person. And I think that's what makes a good Foley artist. It's not just banging out some footsteps. I mean, sometimes you don't have a choice because you've got one day to do an hour show and you're just like, go, 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 go. But sometimes you get two days or three days. We just did a mini series called Brother's Son And Mm. it was a lot of fighting and a really fun, it's a fun show. And that was nice because we got plenty of time to do that show. So we could really hone in on everybody. You could could really play around a bit and get artsy with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's way over the top. Like the fight scenes (laughs) were just like, how many people is he going to fight? Oh, that's fantastic. I'm glad you start kind of bringing up some of these productions you work on because I have some productions I want to talk to you about and kind of hear some experience on. But before I do that, what I'm dying to know is of all the projects that you've worked on, what would be the one that stands out in your mind? I will tell you the one that stands out. There are a few, but I would say the most recent one was the Batman. And um, you're talking the Robert Pattinson Batman. Yeah, the Robert Pattinson Batman. I've never worked like that before on a show where we had no time frame. Mm. So usually you work in reels. So Mm -hmm. maybe a show has five reels and they're 20 minutes each. And you kind of work on the reel one, reel two, reel three. This one, they just came at us with like, okay, here's a scene. And just do it. 
And I was like, oh, okay. It was complete full reign of doing whatever we thought we wanted to do or what we thought sounded good and layering and layering and layering sounds. And wow. we did it. And they were like, we love it. We love it. And so here's another scene. We we're like, okay. And then we started getting <laughs> nervous. Like, well, maybe we need to speed up a little bit. So we did. And <laughs> he said, they, it came back and he said, what happened? <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I mean, the first one was great. I mean, the second one wasn't bad, but it just wasn't like that. And I said, oh, well, we just didn't know how much time we had. He said, don't worry about time. Just wow. Just do your thing. That's a cool way to work. Um, yeah. What a gift that is, right? So many productions yes. talking about what we said at the beginning, our show business. I got a budget to hit. I got to do this in a day, two days, whatever it might be. So I imagine that time is in many ways a very rare thing in your world, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think only one other editor, do I know Dane Davis, sometimes we would have just a day of just coming up with sound effects, which is also a really nice thing to have to just yeah. try this out, try that out. Another editor, Ren Kleiss, he works for David Fincher. And he's another one that he would say, oh, if there's a glass down, just do something different. Use something completely different. I love that because those people don't make you wrong for trying something new. Right. Right. So I think that sometimes you work with people who it's a pressure of getting it right the first time and mm. not everyone's going to get it right the first time. So totally. Yeah. yeah. It is a bit of trial and error at times. I would imagine. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it is a lot, a lot. Very cool. So, yeah, I would say the Batman was just a wonderful experience to work on. And all because you had time as a luxury, which, as anybody in the industry knows, is a difficult thing to find at times. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I've never worked like that. That's incredible. But I imagine that that really shows through yeah. in your work, right? That when you have the time to really get into it, to really play with it, to find the devil in the details, so to speak, it right. really comes across in that final product and you can really find a whole new appreciation for it. Exactly. And it sounded good. You know, I couldn't have been more proud when I went and saw it. Fantastic. So you talk about the Batman. Obviously, there was a series before the Batman that you were Dark also Knight. involved with, yes. with the Dark Knight. Just a tiny film that maybe some people have heard of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what is an aspect of putting together a film, a trilogy like this, that is an extremely challenging part of what you do? Well, especially with those movies, we were told that Chris Nolan doesn't really like Foley. So really. Yeah, but we would have six weeks on each show, which was very nice, a, lot, a nice yeah. amount of time. With Dark Knight, I was surprised at how much they did use, and I think a lot of it was stripped off into the effects tracks, kind of, you know, uh. snuck in. But that Batman cape is the same Batman cape in all three. It's the same Batman cape in all the Arkham video games, because we did all oh. of those. Okay, yeah. And then the new Batman, it was the same cape. So that's been kind of fun to be consistent with, you the know. The cape has carried cape. on through all these different productions. Exactly, and, exactly. And is the cape an actual cape or is it something else? It's something else. It's actually a large piece of pleather 
And oh. so it's very sturdy. We've used it. I've also used it for dragon wings and all sorts of things like that because it's very sturdy. We actually did have one cape before that and it got so trashed that this one had a, we had to buy the newer, better cape. But it worked <laughs> out well. Upgrade your cape. Yeah, because that first Dark Knight, I think, is the first one, right, where he needs a whole new setup. Like his right. suit's heavy. Yeah, so that kind of worked out for the story anyway. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, that's incredible. So when you're working on these, I imagine you are not alone always, right? You're working with a team of folks. Yeah. What does that collaboration look like? So I have a Foley, I have two Foley partners. I have a Foley artist partner and the Foley mixer. And that's Chris Moriana and Darren Mann. And we're just, it's a marriage, basically. I mean, you know, we trust each other and we know each other. We have the same sounds that we want to hear and bounce ideas off of each other. We don't make each other wrong again if like, really? I don't, I think that he's wearing a harder shoe or I'm not sure if that's metal. I think that's something else. Yeah. So it's nice to be able to trust those people that you work with and it's worked out really well. It's just worked out really, really well between the three of us. Fantastic. And when you work with these people, obviously this team of folks is working with a larger team that's obviously putting this entire production together. What is your kind of interaction with the rest of the post team? Do you have much interaction or is it just, here's a sheet, send us your your effects and we take it from here type thing? Oh, no, we do definitely. It's the supervising sound editor that we have a close relationship with and the Foley editor that we'll have Mm. a close relationship with. There's different areas there's television and then there's features and then there are video games so they're all kind of a different animal maybe with the feature work i deal more with the foley editor because they deal more with the supervisor and they're usually just so busy on other you know they're on an adr stage they're all over the place whereas the tv supervisors they're a little more available sometimes or they'll stop by the stage in the old days we would actually play the shows back we'd have that time but no one has that kind of time anymore so (laughs) that is a a rare treat i would imagine nowadays yeah 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 on disney films there was always one day where the picture editor and the two directors would come in with the producer and we would play Uh back the reel and they could it's very exciting for them to see their animated characters come to life because there is no sound right there's no sound in the in animation to begin with and we were doing tangled and it was seen where she finds the stolen crown oh okay yeah there are two guys and they said oh you know that crown needs to sound very very heavy and it's Mm. made of gold and and i said well you know what the 10 year old me wants to hear a very pretty tingly delicate sound yeah and i said i'll give you both versions and then you tell me which one you like sure well you like my version because I'm the audience so (laughs) you're the audience right you're watching this thinking of how you as a princess would wear that and want to see it and all yeah (laughs) yes and who's really this is geared towards so yeah yeah that was very much so 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up Tangled because this is kind of its own subgenre within what you do, right? Yes. There's feature films that are, of course, live action, but then there's animation, yeah. which in some ways, as you've kind of alluded, is a bit of a different beast. You've worked on tons of animated projects, some yeah. of the most notable being Frozen and Tangled, which you just mentioned, of course. Yeah. How does your approach to animation change? Oh, well, it changes because you realize that you, you are creating that <laughs> sound for Olaf because of his wooden arms. I came up with a little squeak. Yeah. And that was like a wicker basket handle. Oh, wow. That I just kind of squeak back and forth. So that was a really fun, cute little sound to yeah. make for Olaf. So we don't really know what a talking, walking snowman sounds like, right? <laughs> we don't. We don't. But it is funny that picture editor did come in and he said i'm from indiana and i know what real snow sounds like and you can't fool me and you need to use real snow and i we said okay so uh-huh. we yeah, brought sure. in we well we brought in 150 pounds of snow cone ice every day to the stage oh my gosh and we would work in the morning until it you know ran out and we would sweeten it sometimes depending it was snow is weird because is it fluffy snow? Is it hard right. snow? Is it what kind of snow is it? So sometimes we would sweeten it with a little cornstarch in a pillowcase oh. to get that creak to okay. it. Yeah. But most of that snow was actual um, snow cone ice. Wow. Okay. Is there a favorite animated character that you've had the pleasure of helping bring to life? Well, I think Olaf is definitely one. Yeah. That's my favorite. I can tell you that. Yeah. Like he's one I of my favorite Disney characters of all time. So <laughs> when you talk about bringing him to life, it's like, oh my gosh, you're one of the people that brought one of my favorite characters to life. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, That's he's really he cool. He's definitely a favorite character. Absolutely. Baymax is the other one. Oh. When he gets drunk and he gets deflated and all that, all, it was just. <laughs> So much fun. That was a really another fun character. Yeah, that's a really fun character because he has such wildly different personalities at times. Yes. So I imagine that comes across very much with what you're doing to bring that to life. Exactly, exactly. Wow, <laughs> very cool. Another film that you worked on, this is kind of almost where worlds collide in the film production world. You've got live action, you've got animation, and then you have a movie like Transformers, where right. <laughs> uh, obviously it's made to look like it's all live action, but we all know that when you're recording this movie that those Transformers aren't actually real. Uh, this is mostly put together in post. And so I would imagine, as a guy from the outside looking in, that this creates a rather unusual challenge to some degree where you are literally inventing sounds. Yes. You know, you talked earlier about how you're kind of bringing characters to life and you can kind of imagine what snow sounds like and that sort of thing. But like, how on earth do you figure out what Optimus Prime sounds like when he's transforming or things of that nature? So talk to me a little <laughs> bit about when you have to create these sounds in a project like Transformers. Yeah, with the Transformers, it's interesting because a lot of the transforming part were cut in by the sound editor, but the detailed stuff were like eye blinks and maybe mm. hands clasping. Sometimes I approach a sound effect like that with, it sounds corny, but I think like I am the sound effect. I'm that eyeball closing. So what would that feel like? What's the mechanism of it? Yeah. And then our stage, just we have 
tons of props and tons of weird things and broken metal pieces and just weird armor stuff. And you just kind of go through and you think, well, maybe these two things will work and you just try it. And if it works, then you've got to take a picture of it. You've got to write down exactly what you did. <laughs> you know, sometimes I videotape myself doing the prop because right. maybe it comes back, especially with video games, this happens. It'll come back a year later. Or with Transformers, maybe it comes back the second Transformer. What do you use right. for that again? Right? Right. But the biggest thing with that first Transformer for me was they had the sound of the metal footsteps. So that metal sound, metal sound, metal sound, what they didn't have was the surface the foot was hitting. Oh, interesting. So rock, grass, dirt. So I had a big rock that probably weighed five to eight pounds, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it is when when you're continually (laughs) picking it up. When you're working with that rock for days on end, I imagine it's heavy fast. Yes. (laughs) So that was the very first one was doing all of those surface sounds. But then they'll keep those for the next one so we don't have to redo those. That was going to be one of my questions is mm-hmm. do they reuse these sound effects? So if, yes. if in Transformers 1 you create the eye blink or whatever it might be, can they reuse that for the next film? Yes. Yes, yes. they can. Yeah. Okay. We don't. Ah, okay. That... See, we don't keep a library. <laughs> okay, so there's a difference. So the the production may choose to for I would imagine budget and time saving purposes. But if it was brought to you, you would start from scratch. You would not pull up the one from the first Transformers. You would literally take it from scratch and look back at your notes. How did we do that? How did we approach it? That sort of thing. That's right. Wow. So like, you know, if I do 10 body falls today, right. for um fairy, let's say. Sure. And then tomorrow, there are 10 more body falls for another show where we do 10 more body falls. Right. Everything's original. The only time we might do that is if it's a recap of something that uh, we already did. Okay. That, like, you know what I mean? Sure. And then Darren will say, hey, you know what? I think I can copy paste right. that one. And just so we don't kill ourselves. Right. Body falls are... We don't physically do a body fall per se that we throw our bodies on the ground. Right. But we do use our upper body and slam it to the ground. So it it is a lot of physicality. I just broke my shoulder in April. So getting myself to be 100% to go back to work means being able to do body falls. Totally. Right. That's a, yeah, it's a tough one. Was this a work-related injury out of curiosity? It was not oh. a work related. Yeah. I was on vacation for six hours. Yeah. Cause I was like, there must be a story if, there's, if it's work related. <laughs> I got plenty of those. <laughs> you, you have had injuries at work. I've had injuries at work and I've got carpal tunnel. I've got bone on bone on my oh, knees. Sure. I mean, it, lots of Foley artists get right. knee replacements just because you're walking and running and jumping and doing so many things and high heels and boots and hard shoes and you're it's yeah. not like you can protect yourself and say oh i'm gonna wear a work boot all day or something something with an orthotic yeah these are some of the things that yeah. kind of come with the job right is that someone's got to do it i imagine you spend a lot of time yes. on your hands and knees yeah. coming up with a lot of these sound effects yeah that gets tougher and tougher getting up on off the wow. floor 
It's like, while I'm on the floor, what else do we have to do? (laughs) Yeah. So when you talk about these props and the things that you use, obviously I imagine it could be quite literally anything under the sun, but what are some of your go-tos in your toolbox? What are some of the more unique things that you typically use for different productions that you're making? In the beginning, when I was first working, we I did mostly television the first like 15 years of my career and some, you know, lower budget shows. Lots sure. of Foley artists would go and buy like prop guns, you know, that you couldn't shoot, but I couldn't okay. afford to buy those. They were expensive. Right. So I took, I still have it. I have a old big cell phone and a crank can opener and it's taped together and that's what i use for gun movement because it had you know guns don't really make a sound but they always want to hear a little bit of a rattle and you know someone pulls a gun out so um i still have that and i had this i was invited to speak up in seattle at a conference and they were all graphic designers and I was like, well, why? It's so interesting why, why they invited me. And they said, because you're creative, we like to get different people who are creative and what their different challenges are. And so when I was up there, they had a printmaking class and they had one of these little rollers that you put the ink, you know, rolled the ink on. And I was doing it and it squeaked really like a squeaky, squeaky, squeaky. And I was like, oh. And she said, well, obviously yeah. we need a new. And I said, <laughs> Can I buy that? For, you know, can I, can I get that from you? <laughs> I want to take this back to the recording studio. Oh, that's funny. So. Yeah. I didn't even think about the fact that, like, you must kind of almost go through life just listening in ways that most yes, people probably yeah. don't, right? <laughs> like, I, th- I yeah, because all those things and think, oh, that would be a really good sound for that. You know, if like a little something spinning or kind of a fun little squeaky sound. An uncooked piece of lasagna makes a great bone crack because it just snaps, Ooh. right? I mean, again, we just kind of fool around with stuff. I rolled a pine cone yeah. over one and it, I got a good sound for cracking ice, like someone stepping on ice and Uh having it crack. Even like just learning from other Foley artists. I learned from another Foley artist cracking an egg. She used an ice cream cone. Oh. And it was so brilliant because eggs are really hard to crack in sync and they don't, it's messy. And this way you have much more control. Yeah. It's so, it's nice to learn from other Foley people. I love what you also said a minute ago, too, about how there are times that we're watching a production, and if we were in real life, there wouldn't be a sound mm-hmm. attached to it. But so many times, especially in movies, there is a sound attached to it, because without the sound, it feels, I guess for lack of a better term, right. naked, weird, just out of place, different, yeah. right? One of the ones that kind of comes to my mind is like every time you watch like this, I feel like this happens a lot in like Fast and Furious movies and things where the stoplight changes. Like when we're driving down the street, we don't hear a very loud noise when the stoplight <laughs> goes from green to red, but it adds to a lot of these yeah. moments, right? What are some of those type of things that you've had to deal with where there is not a noise there, but you have to fill it with a noise because otherwise it sounds weird. Well, Claude is a perfect example of that. When you're walking <laughs> around, you don't really notice, unless you're wearing a yeah. creaky jacket, right? Like leather. Right. We always think of, oh, yeah, that leather or nylon. I mean, people don't wear really sure. wear nylons anymore, but that was a very familiar sound of my grandmother. 
was her nylons yeah. swishing back and forth. So I yeah. think there are those sounds that you're not really aware of. But it's part of it, right? That's right. It's sort of like how sometimes we'll do background people in a restaurant just tinking on their plates with utensils oh, and sure. glasses up and down. And of course, the Walla group, which is the group of actors that come in and do all those background sounds. And it was called a Walla yeah. group because it's, they would go, you know, la, 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 la. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's so funny. So you wouldn't want to hear a distinctive conversation like, hey, Joe, how's it going? How, Joe had what's work good? Yes. Right. So they would just kind of Yeah, mumble. so it was just a little bit of a gibberish. But again, <laughs> if you didn't have that, you might miss that. Yeah. So I think there are all those sounds that you don't think about that are just those layered moments. Yeah. It's always funny because like I remember like when I was in school, when you first start kind of learning about film, you suddenly become much more aware of all the things that go into making a film, right? Which sounds almost incredibly too obvious, but like when you start watching a film, you notice when the camera cuts, you notice when there are sound effects where we wouldn't see them in real life, all these type of things. So you kind of imagine that you know, you're going through life with almost a little bit of a yeah. different lens on constantly hearing these different sounds. And not only what is that sound, does it have a sound, but also, oh, this could be a really good sound for right. something else. Right. right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Fascinating. One of the things that I found on your resume that I thought was very interesting was that it said that you worked on the E.T. remastering. What is it like to take a movie that is arguably one of the biggest classics of all time and remaster something? This was not the original Foley that was done for it, right? Well, it was interesting because my Foley partner at the time was the Foley artist on that movie. Oh, wow. Okay. And the supervisor had won an Academy Award for it, and he was also on that. So oh I was gosh. sort of the odd man out in that <laughs> case. Wow. But it was interesting because my old partner, John Resch, he and his partner, Joni Rowe, had worked on it, and they were trying to come up with the sound of E.T., his movement. And so they were out having lunch, and I think Joni had ordered Jello or something, and she was like, oh, you know, maybe the, maybe Jello. So she made up some jello and put it in a t-shirt, and that was the sound that they made for E.T. For E.T. So John had said to me, hey, listen, can you make up a batch of jello just in case we need to use it <laughs> for E.T.? And I said, sure. So I made up this big plastic bowl full of yeah. jello, and I stuck it in the, you know, it was like this crappy coffee refrigerator at Warner Hollywood. We ended up not having to use it. And a few weeks later, we were working on a movie called Red Planet. And they were saying, so we need the sound of walking on Mars. And who knows what that sounds like, right? <laughs> right. Who knows what, what's Mars? Right, exactly. So you're gonna, it's going to crack a little because no one's ever stepped on it before. But it's yeah. going to be kind of soft and could not figure. I mean, we did wet sand we did all sorts of different things couldn't come up with anything yeah i went into that refrigerator and i saw the jello in there and that refrigerator was so crappy that it had caused a frozen layer over the top of the jello oh and so i came back in and i said i think i got it and so we just recorded wild 
me pressing down on that jello and yeah. to get that crack and that and then the foley editor meticulously cut each footstep of the astronauts that got out i mean you didn't have to do it for the whole show but just the initial you know right. walk out you wanted to hear that so wow that was like a happy accident yeah a happy accident and a case where basically the same thing was two very different sounds and two yes. very different productions that's right exactly wow how <laughs> very cool yeah <laughs> <laughs> so now we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about one of the roles of which you uh, received the most hardware for. I'm, yes. of course, talking about Barry, where yes. you have, I believe, two Emmys already and nominated for another as we speak, right? Yes. Yes. Amazing. Congratulations on the nom. Uh, that's you. incredible. Um, this is their final season, no? It is. Wow. It so wouldn't that be special to get one to, to bring it all home? <laughs> it really would be. It really would be. That's incredible. So I am curious because obviously it sounds like you've worked on the show for a bit. What has that journey been like? Because a lot of the things that, you know, obviously we've talked about here, a film, it's for lack of a better term, a one-off, whereas this is a series that's been going for seasons now. So I imagine you've become a bit more familiar, comfortable with some of the world of Barry, right? So how does that yeah. kind of change what you normally might do? Well, it's interesting because when Chris and I start a show, whether it's a feature or a TV show or whatever it is, mm -hmm. we split up the characters. So mm -hmm. let's say in Barry, he was Barry. Right. And then I was Noho Hank. And then he was this detective. And then I was this person. And so... Sure. We split up the characters and then we stick with those characters throughout the rest of the series. Okay. So you get to know how that person moves, what kind of wardrobe they're wearing, what kind of shoes they have. Right. If they have any idiosyncrasies. So that's always fun to work on a series when you've got really fun characters. Yeah. Especially Noho Hank, who's just such a great character. And with Barry... The episodes were just so fun and interesting. Yeah. Um, the first Emmy we won was for, um, it was Lily, it was the fight scene with the father, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. right? And the daughter. And that to me was just probably one of my most favorite episodes of anything I've ever worked on television wise. Yeah. It was just so well done and thought out and all the props were fun to do and, we really appreciated that Emmy to win for that episode. Yeah. You felt like you really had earned that Emmy and you, you, you put in the good work, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I imagine that working on a show like this has an impact on you, right? Like you've been working on it for a while. Like what are some of the like kind of just emotional impacts that working on a show for so long has on you while you're working on all these different gigs? Well, it's funny you should say that because when we work on shows that are very depressing, we really feel that. Like, it really gets to you because Drained I think you, and, yeah. yes, it's very draining and sad. And right. like horror films, are, those aren't my most favorite. A lot of people love to work on horror films because there's a lot of, you know. Interesting sound effects. Yeah. Interesting sound effects. <laughs> but I don't like to, I'm just too emotional. I do get emotionally attached to oh, characters. Wow. And we did I Am Legend. Uh -huh. And there's the part where they, he has to kill the dog. The dog, and yes. I said to my partner at the time, John, I said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to 
do that scene because I can't, yeah. I just can't watch it again, you know? Yeah. So yeah, so, sometimes those are really tough, you know? Yeah. It mu- yeah. I didn't even really think about it. Like you guys at times are watching these things over and over and over and over yeah. again. So how can it not have a bit of an impact on you? Right? Yeah. Yeah. When we think about this Emmy win, one of my favorite questions that I like to ask people that have won some accolades in the industry is, do the awards actually mean something to you? And the reason I ask is because, you know, so many times people like to scoff, like, oh, it's just another award show. It's Hollywood patting themselves on the back, blah, 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 blah. But what I think a lot of people maybe fail to remember is that kind of like what you were saying a minute ago, there is a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that goes into making a production like this, especially year after year, season after season, those kind of things. Right. So I'm curious what your take is on, it sounds to me like you're very proud of these Emmy awards as, as you should be, but I'm curious what your take is. Well, I think growing up to watching the Academy Awards, watching the Mm. Emmys, we watch a lot of award shows. I watch the Tonys every year. I watch the Grammys sure. every year. The importance is definitely not lost on me. I feel very proud to have, you know, just the first Emmy, which was in 1997, was, yeah. I mean, I felt lucky enough to win then. Who knew I would win again 20 some odd years later? But yeah, it's really not lost on me. I see you've got a little statue there behind you. Uh, Yes. I I don't have as big of a collection as you have, uh, but (laughs) it's one of those things that like, it really is special, right? Especially because you're in a group with your peers. These are people that you've worked with people that you admire that have taught you sometimes your mentors. Right. And for them to all kind of come forward and collectively say, yeah, you know what? We recognize that this was really special. This was. Good job. Yeah, right? Like it really is a hearty pat on the back and a chance to be recognized by those peers, by those mentors and people that mean a lot to you. And then, of course, I imagine for you, it's a little bit of an extra layer because you are following in a bit of a Hollywood legacy of your own at Warner Brothers and because of your parents and, you know, all this sort of stuff, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Also, there's a thing called the Golden Reel Awards, which are the sound editors, you know, the MPSC. And I have seven of those. And they just mean just as much to me because, again, your peers coming together and saying good job. It's nice. It's a little special just to you know, have that recognition throughout your career, especially when you really like, I like what you said earlier. It was like, man, we really put in the work for that Emmy. Like exactly. <laughs> there, there's times when you really put in the extra mile on a project and it's nice to see that rewarded. Right. And, and to get that extra kind of acknowledgement. Exactly. So with all of your experience on all of these different productions, we obviously only touch on a very few of them. I'm very curious to learn a little bit of kind of your take on the industry more at large and kind of just some of your experiences throughout your career with the first question being one of my absolute favorites that I ask everybody and every single person I ask this to always has a different answer. And that's why I love asking this question. Okay. (laughs) In your mind, when you're working on any sort of production, what do you think makes that production such a success? I think the key to all of that is mutual respect, communication, and just being open. Because I think 
that when you feel that no one is lesser on that totem pole of what you're working on, like the assistants are just as important, you know, their job is just as important as my job It's a different job, but yeah, it's important. And yeah. I think that when everybody gets along, not all the time, that, that doesn't happen all the time where people get along and yeah. you know, there's some egos involved. And so totally. it's really nice when someone just calls and just really appreciates what you've done and vice versa. Right. All of our things are cued. We, we don't get anything that doesn't have cues involved in there. So sure. if it's cued properly, we can work more efficiently and better and we don't have to scramble. That's always a nice plus for us is to have a, you know, someone, you know, you only have two weeks to do this show. Right. And I'm so sorry, but I queued a lot of stuff. I queued it for three weeks, but you only have two. Well, yeah. that doesn't help me. No. And that just puts me under pressure. You know right. what I mean? It's like, yeah. Knowing the approach to... matters here, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The Batman was like right. that. Blue Beetle, which we did, was like that. But there are a lot of, I mean, I have to say, very few people are not respectful or yeah. appreciative. I think post-production is a pretty good group of people. I would agree with that. I haven't had yeah. as much time on the post side, but every time that I do, I usually come away saying that was a really enjoyable experience, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it sounds cliche to say, but it really is where the project comes together, right? Like all yeah. the hard work from everybody's departments, both in pre-production, production, obviously, and then obviously the, the hardworking folks in post that bring it together. Like it is where you get to finally see it coming alive. And there is something very special about that process, right? It's true. And it's only 3% of the budget. <laughs> Yeah. Like, you gotta hear it, right? You need to hear. <laughs> Say it again for the people in the back. Yeah, no, you're uh -huh. absolutely right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, who is, I imagine throughout your career, you've worked with an awful lot of people. Who do you think is the person that maybe you could say is maybe one of your favorites or that you've had the greatest pleasure in working with? So, one of my mentors coming into doing Foley is a woman named Kitty Malone. And Kitty Malone and Ross Taylor were the very first Foley team. Ross wow. was an editor, sound editor. She was a dancer. And in the olden days, the editors would hire dancers to come in because they could look, they could see what someone did and really quickly do that in sync yeah. versus, you know, these guys. Kitty said that they would come in with a bucket of beer and they would all sit and do their reels. And Ross was really good at doing Foley. So the guys would say, hey, Ross, I'll buy you a six pack if you do my reel. And he'd say, OK, so that's and Kitty was a dancer on Laugh-In. So she had had a oh, long yes. career as a dancer. She's this petite, small person. And she was Mr. T in the A team. And I always remember that. <laughs> Because a lot of times as a woman, they would say, oh, you girls can't do this. It's a you know football movie. You can't be big like those guys. Or my mixer, Mary Jo, they were going to do a baseball movie. And he said, the supervisor said, well, I don't want Mary Jo on it because I need someone who really knows about baseball. And little did he know she'd gone on a baseball tour all over the country, oh different stadiums. She was a huge baseball fan. And then he had the nerve to cue a second shortstop. Mary Jo said, ah, 
the second short stop there's only one short you know like he didn't even know what he was talking about <laughs> but i think yeah kitty is like just the person i look to as someone to strive to be i think she even worked on star wars and yeah they worked on a lot of different shows very cool it's nice yeah. to have that mentor i feel like that's one of the things that like when students come and ask me like what is your biggest advice for getting in the industry when I, one of my common answers is find yourself a mentor right you gotta have yes. someone to experiment with and talk creatively with that has been yeah. there that understands it that knows what's going on those mentors mean a lot and they do throughout your entire career even when you are at a point where you have enough chops on your own to spread your wings those mentors still have a place in our lives throughout our careers. I think that that's really important because there have been a lot of people that have come up in Foley who weren't properly trained. Mm. And I think being trained, not just physically, the physicality, but just the etiquette of Foley and how to yeah. act and what to charge. I mean, I was very instrumental in organizing the Foley artists in 1998 we didn't have any union oh, wow. affiliation kitty and those guys did because they were dancers and they got paid through sag oh, sure. but for years we did not have any union support so in 2015 we signed in local 700 which is the editor's guild Amazing. and so it's nice to have that um to be in that but if there's overflow work they can still use non-union Foley people. So it's a little frustrating because you just want to get, say to everybody, listen, here's how much you should charge. Right. This is the very minimum you should charge. Yeah. You know, we all worked in teams before. Now people are working by themselves. Okay, if you work by yourself, you need to charge this. Right. That's the hard part, I think, is trying to get that Foley community together because- it lessens your work in that yes. sense of, you know. And and unfortunately, there's some that like are earlier in their careers. They just want to get the job. They want to get the experience. They're That's willing right. to take a lower rate to get in the door, right? But ultimately, I think there's something to be said for that. That, that ultimately hurts the industry and the department right. as a whole, right? And them, really. And them yeah. in the long run. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. Very much right? so. Yeah, yeah. Like you get why they're doing it, but at the same time, Ultimately, big picture, long run, it's not helpful. It's only going to be hurtful. That's right. That's right. Sometimes it's hard to get that across to make sure people see that because it is a competitive industry, right? I, I remember yes. when we were talking on the phone the other day, when, when you told me that you were in-house at Warner Brothers, I said, that's kind of like a Supreme Court nomination. Like once you're right. in there, yeah. you're kind of in for life. So <laughs> it is a little competitive, right? And you had mentioned it was hard even just kind of getting in yourself to that world because people don't just retire. Like people are doing this oh, no. until they're in their 80s and 90s, right? Well, when I first worked at Warner Brothers, it was 1998. And mm. I was working with this guy, John Resch, and our mixer, Mary Jo Lang. And John just retired last year. He was up at Skywalker. They built him a big, beautiful stage. And so John and I were together for like 20 years and then Skywalker offered him a stage up north yeah. and Mary Jo and I were like, nah, you know, we don't really want to move up north right. um, and start all over. So have fun. So Warner Brothers had two stages and this was the big stage that we were on. And we talked to our boss about what 
future was holding for us. And I had worked there 20 years. Mary Jo had been there 25 years. And he said, well, I know you girls are good, but nobody else does. So I'm going to have to see what happens. And we were flabbergasted. Like, are you serious? I mean, I think a lot of people know that we're good, but we had to really struggle and prove ourselves. Yeah. Then right when we did, they took the stage away from us and turned it into a big dubbing stage. Oh my gosh. And they, and someone was already on the other Foley stage. Another team was already established there. And they said, so, you know, we're going to build you a new stage, not right away, but we're going to find you another stage off campus to work at. And then we're going to build you a new stage. And so for two years, we found a stage and we worked and worked nights on the other stage. I mean, it was just a horrible two years of hanging in there. And then the pandemic hit. Right. And that team that had worked there had just completely fallen apart right before literally like the week before everything shut down and so when we came back six months later we were the team so it was a rough two years but it really paid off but you know you're in the top team and yet when the one person leaves who they think was doing all the work right you suddenly you find know. yourself having to kind of prove yourself again, right? That's right. That's right. Wow. That's right. It's funny. The next question on my list is literally, what has been the biggest struggle you face in this industry? And it sounds like to an extent, this is part of it, it, right? Like where you have yes. to reprove yourself despite years of experience and accolades and just an endless list of credits. People are still like, eh. And I imagine some of that is still a little bit of an inherent sexism that comes in that department, right? Yeah, I truly think there is one supervisor who we had worked with and he had won a couple of Academy Awards and we had really done good work. But I think in his eyes, he saw John as being the main person. And, you know, I mean, after 20 years, of course, our work was equal. John is a nice guy, super nice guy, and he really doesn't try to take that all to himself. Um, You know, I'll never forget, we were working on Tangled, I think it was, and all the people had come in, and we'd play the reel back, and everything looked great, and we go, okay, let's go down to the Foley stage and show them the stage, and I was at the end and the picture editor said, oh, that sounded great. I said, thanks. He said, now what do you do? Oh. (laughs) This again kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier, right? Which is if you're good at your job, in some cases, if you're too good at your job, right? It kind of gets forgotten, swept under the rug. But it's also crazy because there's this natural kind of assumption that like, getting in, proving your worth when you're young and learning, that's going to be the hardest part of your career, right? Come to find out that some 20 some years later, you are in a similar situation and it's like, well, maybe getting in wasn't the hardest part after all. It was kind of reinvented in some ways. It just, it blows my mind and it speaks to the work that's still to be done in this industry. Yeah. There are some things that we still constantly forget about that needs to be put a little bit more in the spotlight. Yes. 
Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So now my next question to you, which is another one of my favorites to ask people, is what is the most Hollywood thing that you've ever experienced? All of us know that there is those crazy moments that happen that sometimes are defining points in our industry career. What is your most Hollywood story that you've experienced? I will tell you the first time I went to the Academy Awards and the whole process of driving up Hollywood Boulevard and it's all fenced off. Right. And this was right after 9-11. So they had oh, all the, arm, you know, with the things under the, you know, cars and you pull up on the red carpet that's on Highland and Hollywood and there's a right. tent there and you walk in the tent and they're checking everybody in. And, you know, I've watched the Academy Awards every year for my whole sure. life. So this is a big deal to go to the Academy Awards. Yeah. And after you're in that little tent, you kind of walk around and then you walk and you're on the red carpet. Yeah. When I walk out of there and you're on that red carpet and you see everything, it was such a moment for me. Like, First of all, it was so small. It was so much smaller than I thought it was going to be because <laughs> it just looked so massive on TV. Yeah. But just, it was mind-blowing, you know, that I'm there and yeah. there are all these people in the stands and you don't even notice the stars because everybody is all dressed up and pretty right. and the press is on one side, but it was really fabulous. And then my friend wanted to smoke a cigarette so we went to the smoking section and that right. was like all the actor, you know, all the people that's where they were. Everyone the most celebrity smoking. filled smoking section you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> that's pretty funny. That That's, but, that's a pretty good yeah. Hollywood story. Yeah. I, yeah. I would say that's up there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad that you talk about how, You've been to the Academy Awards a number of times, yet you still get excited every time because I think this is something that is very much a thing for me, which is that I got in this industry because I love the industry, right? Because yeah. when I was a kid, I loved watching movies. When I would go on vacations to Disney World or to Universal, they would show you, especially back in the day, they do it differently now. Nowadays, it's more about like immersing yourself into a movie. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, they used to, basically cater the theme parks to how they made the movies. Oh, and I that, to me, oh, oh, that was my Lucille favorite Ball's part. dressing room, right? You'd walk into Universal. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. I loved Universal then. It was my favorite. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I just loved yeah. that. And so that is a lot yeah. of what drove me into the interest of, oh, I want to do this as a career. And mm -hmm. so that excitement that I had when I would see Lucille Ball's dressing room at Universal yes. Studios – I still have that excitement now. That excitement carries over every time I'm on a studio lot, every time I'm on a set. Yes. I still get excited even now, some 16 years after I moved out to LA, right? And and it sounds like you're the same. Oh, I do too. When I drive through those gates at Warner Brothers, it's yeah. just, and when someone knows you or the familiarity at that point, yeah. I mean, I'm just... It's not lost on me whatsoever. You know, the commissary, yes. knowing everyone there, knowing the plant department. It really is a little community on the lot there. And when I won my first Emmy, 
we, it was at the Pasadena Convention Center, and okay. uh, we were so excited that we won. You yeah. go on stage, and the one person gets it. Then you right. go backstage, and everything's exciting. Oh. And then they said, okay, over here to this tent. We're like, okay. And rush it over to this tent, and there's, <laughs> there's a guy sitting there at a table, and behind him are like, I don't know, 200 Emmys? He says, okay, sign your <laughs> yeah. name. Sign here. And, I, and he's like, here you go. And it was like, yes, that was so disappointing. This is exactly. <laughs> but now it's different. They're, Congratulations and step over here and get your picture taken and go down, talk to the press. It's, you know, but th- that initial one was so like, well, yeah, I, what? You know? <laughs> yeah, that is exactly what I'm talking about. Right. Is that there are many people that work in this industry that just treat this like anything else. And like, it's not a little special and a little different. And We also talked earlier about how, like, this is a job. It is show business, all that. I get that, right? But at the end, it's exactly what you said where it's like (laughs) you're having the time of your life, having the night of your life, right? You're like, oh, my gosh, I just got an Emmy. And then this guy's like, yeah, well, well," you know, like like he's at an Arby's drive-thru or something. And it's just. Right, exactly. (laughs) It just, it takes away a little bit. And I think that some of that comes down to the legacy, right? Like. One of my favorite studio lots in town is the Sony Pictures lot because it used to be the MGM lot back in the day where Judy Garland and the Munchkins walked around while they were filming The Wizard of Oz, which was my favorite movie growing up. And I can literally walk basically on the yellow brick road, right? They even have some of the yellow bricks still there. Like there's this history and it just – you feel it. You feel it when you walk through those gates. You feel it when you're in those sound stages that the productions that have come before you and the productions that you're creating now, it's all part of this Hollywood magic, right? Like I do believe in the Hollywood magic and it sounds like you do too. And that's what makes me so happy to have you here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know if Sony does it, but you know, Warner brothers has plaques on all their sound stages. Yes. Tells you one of my favorite things. Yeah, it's so great to do that, you know, to yeah. see that. And they do still have a lot of their older sets still up. And yeah, um, they do it. So. I think now they're doing a TCM tour of older. The, it's of the now old, tour of movies. Just old yeah. movies. Yeah. I mm. think it's fabulous, you know. I agree. When you're on the Warner Brothers lot, do you have like a favorite place that you like to hang? You know, I, I kind of think there's an area where you used to be able to drive through and it's marked off now and they have a fountain and a large, large piece of the Berlin wall. Oh, and okay. when you become a Warner brother employee, they give you a little piece of the Berlin wall. Oh, wow. Which is really interesting. I had no idea. They also have a really beautiful world war one memorial on the lot mm-hmm. too, which is a really cool thing but they have these rose gardens in the back that are by the executive offices and i really love to just roam around there it's just pretty and quiet and there's a couple hawks that nest up in the trees there and that is just a a kind of a special place for me yeah that's a great answer there's so many special places on all these different back lots and it's hard to pick just one spot isn't it (laughs) yes I was just watching Kuehl Hausner did a thing on the Warner Brother lot. And oh, yeah. it was interesting because it was in, they still had the Western Street. Sure. Because they don't right. have that anymore, you know, and yeah. they don't make Westerns anymore. So, right. so it was really be... fun to see it, you know, to see the Western, the Western yeah. Street. It's also always fun to watch how 
the needs of the studios evolve through the years, right? Like to your point, yeah. there's not many places that have Western stages anymore, but there's a lot more that have downtown and, you know, things of that nature. So it's right. fun to watch that evolution through the years and how it goes. Universal, I know, recently did their whole uh, going from the kind of quote unquote normal sets to the HD, you know, and all of this. Oh. Kind of, so, yeah, everybody mm. got their uh, facelifts and upgrades and that. So it's, it's, been, <laughs> it's been fun to need, fun to see that. So now I'm curious, you've worked on so many things. Is there a production that you are dying to work on? Oh, that's a good question. There are so many shows that I really love that I would have loved to have been a part of. I love Ted Lasso. I think that would have been a really fun one. I have my Um, my believe right here. (laughs) Yes, I love that. I love that. I just thought that that was just really, really Such well done. Try to think of what else, even film wise. Oh, I, I am a huge fan of Baby Driver. I think oh, to sure. me, Baby Driver is one of the best examples of music and sound effects, and they're all sunk up together. And yeah. Scott Pilgrim versus the world. And I think that they're both, that were the same sound editor. And I, yeah. I got to meet him and I completely geeked out, you know, like, <laughs> oh my God, I'm, I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so dumb, but those shows would have been fun to do. Yeah. But I've been really lucky to work on some really great stuff. Yeah. You know, very much so. The Star Trek stuff we did, Picard, that was all kind of fun, really fun projects to do. I did get to walk my dad once in an evening shade that he worked on. So oh. that was kind of a fun. <laughs> fun Very nice. Too. But yeah, I've been pretty fortunate, I think. Yeah, you, you've so. definitely had plenty of experience on a lot of interesting productions throughout the years. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> N- nothing to complain about, I'm sure. <laughs> no. And they've also brought a, a lot of great people by the stage. Angela yeah. Merkel came by. Michelle Obama came by. Oh my gosh. Kids. Yeah, that was probably my favorite day of, in my career was well now you have uh, to tell that story (laughs) okay so so angela merkel had just come by yeah with an entourage of like 50 people and she was very very nice and i think because we had already been vetted by the fbi and everybody they said okay so we have a special guest coming we can't tell you who it is but it's a woman and she's coming by with her mother and her best friend and her two daughters and they're on vacation. So no photographs. Right. And we're like, that'd be Michelle Obama. Yeah. Like, (laughs) you know, who else, who else is it going to be? So Barack Obama, they were supposed to be all be on vacation, but the oil spill had happened in the Gulf. So he didn't go on vacation, but they did. And about a week before, the FBI came again and looked at our stage. And we had we have a bookshelf full of props, and they're all right. marked. Sure. And one is marked gun stuff and grenades. And so, <laughs> I imagine the FBI doesn't love that. <laughs> so he, he went there and he's like, get that. Get that out of here. We were like, okay. <laughs> So the way the Foley stage was set up is you walk into the stage and to the right was the mixing booth and you walk straight ahead. There's the stage. And then at the very far wall was another double door that went to a prop room. And then there was another door outside. So 
two ways in and out, actually three. So again, we're not supposed to know who's coming. And right. they said, you know, they'll be here about one o'clock. They're just going to the Foley stage and the museum and that's it. Really? So you were one of the only stops for this tour. Correct. Wow. So we hear the helicopters. And so we all lined up from the stage and people were like poking their head out and the secret service like back in your room. Like they were completely like nobody could be anywhere out near this area. Yeah. And we were working on cats and dogs at the time, that movie cats and dogs. And I had made up for the girls gloves with paper clips taped to them because that's what we use for dog paws. Oh, okay. And then just some regular gloves that we use for kitty paws. Yeah. And I thought, oh, you know, I'll give them these as a gift. Sure. And they said, no, 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 no. You can't give them anything. If they ask for it, they can have it. But, well, they're not going to ask for it. So, yeah. well, but I made them up anyway. So here they come. And Michelle Obama and her mother and her best friend and their two daughters. And they walk in. And my Foley partner, John, at the time was just completely nervous. What do I call her? Mrs. President? Do I call her Mrs. President? I said, just whatever she introduces herself. <laughs> and so, of course, she said, hello, I'm Michelle. And right. we come on on stage. We showed them the stage. And we did a little demonstration. And John completely, like, he was so cute. I just completely took over the entire tour because he was so awestruck with her. <laughs> and I said, here, would you like to do, you know, try it? And she said, sure. And she had all these bracelets on and she took off her bracelets. And I thought, well, she's been, she watched something about Foley because who, who would know <laughs> to do that? She's a pro already. <laughs> That's right. And then she was wearing a really pretty dress and she got right down on the ground because I had been on the ground. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, oh dear. So Anyway, they went, they just sat down on the stage on the couch and they started talking to us and they said, oh, you know, how'd you get into the, I said, oh, my dad was on being, oh, Michelle's mom said, oh my God, Michelle loved that. She loved that show. She used to sing the theme to Green Acres all the time. And then Michelle Obama started singing the theme to Green Acres. Oh my God. And they probably hung out for like 30 minutes and it was so fun and so exciting and then they left and my boss hung out at the time he was hanging out in the back and he said i have to tell you something i was so proud of you guys when you were doing the tour but when she started singing the theme to green acres i almost started crying (laughs) (laughs) yeah definitely wasn't on the list of things that you thought might happen that day right right (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly oh my gosh what a great story to have them come by and to see you, you know, again, we talk about how, you know, a lot of times you guys are the ones that are kind of, if you're good at your job, you're often just forgotten about. And the fact that they sought you out, that, that's so special. Yeah. They like to show us off on tours just because it's, the, I always say it's the sight of sound. So it's mm. kind of, and it's, they always, you know, think it's, Oh, you guys get to play in the sand all day. And it's like, well, no, not really, but um, I know it <laughs> there's looks more like to it do. than that. Yeah. And I thought, well, we didn't get to meet Barack Obama, but I think he heard all about us today. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? That's right. <laughs> wow. That's very cool. What a neat yeah. story. So coming off of that, one of my questions here is 
what are you convinced is the coolest job in Hollywood? And I always like asking this because sometimes people think that there are other cool jobs besides the one that they're in. But man, after hearing that story, I don't know if you can top your job. Like I just, <laughs> You know, I think a really cool job is a music supervisor. Because Ooh, I okay. think, you know, again, coming from my musical roots, I just mm. think to be able to work with the music and setting moods and being on the scoring stage. And I think that would be a really cool job. Yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah. I was going to also ask, like, is there something in your career that you have not yet accomplished, but is on the bucket list to accomplish yet? Like, do you want to try your hand a, a little bit more on the music side or is what else is still on your horizon that you're trying to knock off the list? You know, I don't, I think I'm really there. I think I'm really <laughs> just with all the accolades and everything, I couldn't ask for anything more. I'm just thrilled to be where I am. And I'm hoping that I can do it for at least another five years. Yeah. That's my goal. My goal. Is there you go. That's a, that's a good goal in itself, right? To just keep yeah. doing it for another few yeah. years and <laughs> enjoying your time. I mean, yeah, it's, it's like I said, it's hard to top these stories and these experiences that you've had. So your answer does not surprise me here at all, but <laughs> When we talk about the industry and like when you first came in versus now, has your perspective of the industry changed over time? It has. I mean, the whole industry has changed, obviously. Just even since my dad was on Green Acres, it's so much bigger and so much larger. And just with streaming and everything, it's just you've got so much more work and so much just you work differently because... Yeah. Before you would have time in between setups that you could sort of relax. I mean, it's not like that anymore. It's just a go, 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 go type right. of a thing. But I also think it's better because it's more efficient. You have more time to be creative. And I think women are being recognized still in post, you know, dubbing mixers. Yeah. It's just a handful of women. And I yeah. do encourage a lot of women who want to get into sound to say, you know, you might want to look into being a mixer because that's kind of an untapped job right now. I always liked jobs that not a lot of women did. For some reason, mm. I thought the opposite, like, hey, maybe there's more opportunity because there aren't a lot of women in that field. Right. Which which in some cases, you're correct. But also to what we were talking about earlier, there's a bit of an uphill climb sometimes there, too. Right. That's right. That's right. I think and also pay wise, you know, I was also a victim of that, of being paid half of what my partner was being paid at the time. Yeah. So some things just haven't changed as much as they could. But the people I work with and the experiences I've had overall have been pretty good. Even though those rough couple of years with proving myself, even when I came out of that, the same guy who said, I know you girls are good. He said, you know, you really hung in there and you yeah. really stuck it out. So it was acknowledged. That's nice. So, yeah. Yeah. For the young ladies that might be listening and mm -hmm. piquing their interest as we speak, as they listen to this and they're like, oh, maybe that would be interesting. What would your advice be to those ladies listening? I say meet as many people as you can mm. and 
go on your instincts on who seems to be a nice person and who doesn't seem to be a nice person because even though you have to pay your dues you don't always have to pay your dues with a someone who's not such a nice person Mm, that's a solid piece of advice right there right because it might be the top person on a dub stage but they're a jerk there's tons of people that's the bottom line there's not just one or two people and someone will be nice enough to talk to you don't be embarrassed to go Mm -hmm. up to someone and introduce yourself and be nice that's the thing too I've always told this to students always be nice because if there's any opportunity the person who's nice is who people want to be around yeah you may not know everything like there might be the person who knows everything and maybe is better suited yeah but if they're not nice, I always said that when I started working with John, because I had done TV that whole time, and this was really a career boost to work at Warner Brothers, because this yeah. was now the feature world, which I hadn't done a lot of those big features. I didn't know if I could do those big features. But I remember saying, oh, you guys are so nice. You know, you just keep me around because I'm nice and pleasant and kind of, you know, like, and they said, yeah, but you're good. You are good. And I said, oh, okay. I still didn't believe it. <laughs> you know, it took me a long time. The imposter syndrome is real. Yeah. And it's hard to get past it sometimes. Solid advice all around. I think there's always this kind of stigma or maybe this kind of thought process that goes in when young folks are starting off in the industry that the person that they're interacting with, whoever that person might be, oftentimes the first few people they meet and interact with in the industry, that they think that they're the only links they're ever going to have in their entire lives. And so if they're not being treated well or whatever, that they have to put up with that because otherwise they ruin all their chances and they're never going to have a career in Hollywood and all this. And it sounds like what you're saying, which I completely agree with, is there are other people and there are nicer people. And if it doesn't feel right and if your instincts are telling you maybe not so much, then uh, go find those other people because there's plenty of nice folks that are willing That's to right. give you the chance, right? And listen and help and all those things. That's right. And you might be in a position one day where you might have to hire that person or you have an opportunity to or not yeah. to. Yeah. Right. The tables turn often in this industry, don't they? <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it time and time again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. Well, this is the point where we come to our final act. It's act three, our favorite act of all, which is the Hollywood hot seat. This is where okay. I get to ask you 10 kind of rapid fire questions okay. and you shoot back to me what first comes to the top of mind. Okay. This is called the Hollywood hot seat. Are you ready to play? Yes, I'm ready. Question number one. Favorite movie of all time? Harold and Maude. Oh, good answer. (laughs) What a great, (laughs) what a great movie. Great answer. Number two, favorite TV show of all time? Oh, my goodness. Favorite TV show. I have to say it's not Green Acres. (laughs) I would love to say that it was, but I think I was too young to get Green Acres. That's fair. I'm going to say Here Come the Bride because I was just talking about it the other day. There you go. Okay. Great. (laughs) Number three, the fictional character that I identify most with is? Oh, I 
You know, I'm going to say mod. Oh, okay. Very good. Very yeah. nice. Yeah. Number four, which TV show or film is your biggest guilty pleasure? Oh, it would definitely have to be like Vanderpump Rules or one of those reality. <laughs> okay, a little little reality D- TV dish. Yes. Okay, yes. okay. We we won't hold it against you. No. It's fine. <laughs> Number five, favorite movie quote. Oh, um, you know, I keep going back to Harold and Maud, but it's when Maud is talking to Harold and she says, you've got to live your life, you know, L I V E live. Otherwise you got nothing to talk about in the locker room. That's right. I love that line. (laughs) It's a great line. Yeah. And and a very inspiring one at that. Next one here is what is your favorite go-to craft service snack? Oh, well, we don't have craft service, but we do. That's messed up. Uh, we got to change that. Um, but we used to get sometimes get like a cheese plate or something. But I will tell you my favorite snack. And we, Chris and I have it every day at nine o'clock on our morning break is popcorn. Oh, great. <laughs> classic answer. It fits, it fits the theme and everything. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Who is your Hollywood crush hall pass? It would have to be Keanu Reeves. Ooh, that's a good answer. Okay. And just not just because I think he's cute, but I've always heard that he's probably one of the nicest people on the planet. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Well, this goes to my next question, perhaps. Who is a talent that you are dying to work with? Oh, probably. And I can't even remember his name, but the sound supervisor on Baby Driver. Oh, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 Because we don't really work with directors directly but yeah as far as like a, a sound person yeah okay very good if you could trade places with anybody for a day it would be who oh that's a good question i'm a big foodie so it might be a Ooh. foodie person oh you know what i would trade places with taylor swift just a whole different world of what it's like to to be taylor Oh, totally. Talk about a completely different world, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And again, another very nice person. Yeah. Amazing. And then my last question here, what is the best piece of advice that you've received throughout your career? You've given a lot of great advice so far, but I'm curious, what is the one that kind of takes the cake and who did it come from? When I was an assistant to a sound editor, so I wasn't technically an assistant sound editor but i was this editor's personal assistant okay i was again like 19 and i felt like oh i like my life is going nowhere because <laughs> i was very hard on myself yeah and i don't remember the guy's name but i met this guy he was an editor and he said how old are you and i said yeah i'm 19 he goes let me just tell you something just stick with it and I guarantee you, you will end up somewhere. Mm. You just stick with it. You will not be here forever. That was the best piece of advice because it gave me hope. It was like, you just got to put your time in. Yes. And I always say, you know, take any job like I did. I took a job with a sound editor, even though I wanted to go into music because it was similar. 
because you never know where your path is going to go or yeah, who knew that there was even a Foley artist. I didn't know that at the time. So if you're open to whatever that path is going to be, you will end up somewhere. Amen. Great advice and a great way to end this interview. Allison, Thanks. we have had so much fun with you today. So for those that are wondering how they can follow your adventures online and learn more about you, where can they do that? So I have an Instagram account called Just Ask Allison. Ooh. Oh, it's just underscore ask underscore Allison. And I post a lot there with a lot of the work stuff, but also just personal foodie stuff. Perfect. So people can go and find you and perhaps ask you something. I don't know. Maybe. You yes, know. <laughs> they can. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us and telling us all your anecdotes <laughs> and stories of the industry. I have loved hearing them all, and hopefully we can do this again sometime. Oh, thank you. I would love that. The great questions. I really had a great time. Oh, likewise. Thank you so much again. Okay. Thanks a lot, Kyle. Kyle on the Isle is an official podcast of Magical Ant Productions and is recorded in the heart of Hollywood, California. This episode was executive produced and directed by me, Kyle Olson. Produced by Natalie Izquierdo and Lauren Wilson. Editing by Cody Crabb. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and rate it five stars. Every single review goes a long way. And while you're at it, give us a follow on our social media channels, at Kyle on the Isle. Thanks for listening. I'm Kyle Olson, and I'll be saving you a seat next time on the Isle. That's a wrap, folks.